Today's episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of audiobooks with over 180,000 downloadable titles to choose from. Get a free audiobook download by signing up over at audible.com galaxy. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 172 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing Jewish themes in fantasy and science fiction, and I'm joined by three guests. So, first up, we've got Jack Dan. He's written nine novels and over a hundred short stories, and he's also edited dozens of anthologies, including Wandering Stars and More Wandering Stars, two classic anthologies of Jewish science fiction and fantasy. He also co-edited Everybody Has Somebody in Heaven, Essential Jewish Tales of the Spirit, a collection of short fiction by Avram Davidson. Jack's new book, Concentration, a collection of his short fiction dealing with the Holocaust, is forthcoming from PS Publishing. So, Jack, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Then next up, we've got Rachel Swirsky. She was the founding editor of the PodCastle podcast, and she's a former vice president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. She's published more than 70 short stories and won the Nebula Award twice. Her second collection, How the World Became Quiet, is out now from Subterranean Press. Together with Sean Wallace, she co-edited People of the Book, a decade of Jewish science fiction and fantasy. So, Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you. And finally, we've got Matthew Kressel. His short story, The History Within Us, appeared in Rachel's anthology of Jewish science fiction, People of the Book, and his stories, The Sounds of Old Earth and The Meeker and the All-Seeing Eye, were both nominated for the Nebula Award. Together with Ellen Datlow, he co-hosts the monthly Fantastic Fiction reading series at the KGB Bar in New York, and his debut novel, King of Shards, which draws on Jewish folklore, is out now from Arch Press. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. And today's show is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of downloadable audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from. I've been an Audible customer for over a decade and have bought over 150 audiobooks through the site. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy only releases about an hour of new content each week, and if that's not enough geekiness for you, you should think about listening to some of the great books that we talk about on the show. With an Audible subscription, you can get monthly audiobooks, even giant 34-hour-long audiobooks like Game of Thrones, for only about $15 each. Audible has a wide selection of fantasy and science fiction titles, including books by most of the authors we interview on this podcast. So if you'd like to give Audible a try, just head on over to audible.com galaxy and sign up. You'll get a free audiobook download, and if you're looking for a good place to start, I recommend picking up The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, The Primary Phase. This is the original BBC radio drama that started it all. My parents used to have this on cassette tape, and when I was growing up, we listened to it literally dozens of times on long car rides, so I can personally testify to its power to make time fly. It's a fast, smart, hilarious show that I think would make a perfect introduction to the world of science fiction audiobooks. And remember that these sponsorships are essential for keeping Geek's Guide to the Galaxy going. So not only will you be getting lots of great audiobooks, you'll also be showing our sponsors that this show is worth supporting, which will help us to continue bringing you new episodes. So again, the site is audible.com, and you can sign up for a free trial and get a free audiobook download over at audible.com galaxy. Okay, and so I mentioned that Jack edited this anthology of Jewish science fiction called Wandering Stars, and I want to start out and talk about that. And so this is from Wikipedia. It says, 
In his introduction, Isaac Asimov discussed how many Jewish science fiction writers prior to that time had used Gentile pen names in order to get published. Quote, Many of the Jewish pulp writers used pen names as a matter of sound business. A story entitled War Gods of the Oystermen of Deneb didn't carry conviction if it was written by someone named Haim Itzkowitz. He then goes on to discuss the pen names of various Jewish writers included in this book. Wandering Stars is therefore of historical significance as the first science fiction anthology where Jewish writers openly identified themselves as such. And so, Jack, could you just expand on that a bit and talk about what it was like for Jewish science fiction authors in the early days of the genre? Well, I think I probably came in a little too late for that because it didn't seem to be a problem for me. But the generation before, which would have been Isaac's generation, kind of, you know, you didn't mention that you were Jewish, you know, hence, uh, you know, William Tenn's, uh uh, pseudonym. And I guess a, a number of other writers did the same, but, you know, Silverberg, who came in after, uh, didn't worry about that. So, uh, yeah, I do think it was a problem. And I think that by publishing the anthology, maybe I uncovered it. But when I did it, uh, it was not conscious. It was just, uh, I, you know, I, I had the idea to do an anthology of Jewish science fiction because it hadn't been done. Hmm. Well, say I a don't bit know more. If that answers your question very well, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but say a bit more about the anthology. I mean, what was your process for putting it together? How did you decide who to include? Stuff like that. Well, you know, first I, I you know, I asked Isaac. And we went back and forth because Isaac, you know, like myself, is an atheist, but we're both cultural Jews. So he was on board, and uh, I used a spine of stories uh, that had been published. And then I just asked people uh, whose work I respected uh, to write stories for me. I mean, it didn't seem like this was groundbreaking at the time. And I guess I was surprised at the reception. Hmm. Well, so, so what was the reception? Very positive. You know, Leo Rostin uh, said, uh, Jewish science fiction, the book is unexpected, delightful, and delirious. The English idiom, the English idiom, <laughs> learn to Ooh. talk, Jack. <laughs> the the English idiom is worth the price of admission. <laughs> so it was, it was a surprise. Well, so why don't you just tell us about some of the stories, just what were they about, and how did people make use of the, the Jewish folklore aspects? Well, you know, Avram Davidson basically modernized uh, the idea of the golem, which uh, takes place, if I recall, in, uh, in Southern California. You know, Silverberg uh, wrote a story called The Dybbuk of Mazel Tov IV, uh, which is about uh, the possession of an alien by, uh, by a Jewish demon. Uh, Harlan wrote a story called I'm Looking for Kodak about uh, the last minion on a doomed planet. So that's what I got. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, uh, <laughs> sorry. Oh, great. No, that's great. So, so Rachel, let's uh, get you in here. Um, so you also did an anthology of Jewish science fiction and fantasy. You want to just tell us about how that came about? 
Uh, yeah, actually, uh, this was something Sean Wallace had wanted to do for a long time, and I guess he had tried to launch it with a couple of other co-editors, which for one reason or another didn't work out. So he ended up asking me if I would be interested in, you know, reading a bunch of fiction and throwing some selections together, which I did. I, I really like reading for reprints um, because you have such a a vast well of, you know, accomplished work to draw from. And he already had some ideas of stories he wanted to be in there. So um, there are a number of his selections as well. Uh, it's different from Jack's in that it's all reprints. And also it was confined to only um, the decade uh, that was in question at the time, which uh, I believe is 2000 to 2010. And I mean, do you think that in terms of subject matter, was it similar, do you think, to Wandering Stars? Or were there other approaches that people took uh, in the more recent decade? Well, um, I think that, um, I think it's hard to say really, uh, people are certainly, um, interested in what it means to be Jewish. Uh, there's still sort of a retread of, uh, common Jewish mythological, uh, themes in modern settings. Um, I think Matt Kressel did a really beautiful job in what was one of my favorite stories in the anthology. Hi, Matt. I'm embarrassing you. <laughs> um, of talking about, uh, loss and genocide and, and the feeling of fragility as a people, uh, through, uh, the history within us, which is set in a far future space opera. Um, another thing that comes to mind is, you know, um, what I thought was one of, again, one of the most beautiful stories in the collection was uh, Michael Shabon's story, which I believe is called Some Golems I Have Known. Um, golems, right? I have mispronounced that my entire life. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got yelled at after doing a recording for <laughs> a podcast, and they were like, that's not how it's pronounced. I was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah, which is... Um, fake memoir or memoir blended with total fantastic stuff that it's all made up and blended together in this great postmodernist way. Yeah. Well, so, so Matt, so Rachel mentioned your story. Is there anything else you want to add about kind of how you came up with it or what you were trying to accomplish with it? Uh, sure. So um, the story's Genesis was, um, you know, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> a, it started Basically, we were, uh, my father had a bunch of old, uh, films from his childhood, these reel to reels, and he had recently converted them into, um, basically DVD. And then, uh, my cousin, who was in videography at the time, uh, came over to record a voiceover where my father was describing the scenes. And I thought, oh, wait, um, you know, I work in, in technology. I'm a computer programmer. And I thought to myself, you know, once something's in digital form, it is possible to uh, transfer it um, without loss. So, you know, when you copy a VHS tape or an audio cassette using analog technology, that you always lose quality. So over time, you know, photos would fade, films would fade. And I thought, wow, if I, if I take care of this and I back this up and technology, data storage gets cheap enough, eventually, you know, we could get to a point where this might exist you know, indefinitely. And I thought that, you know, if I ever have children or, or you know, uh, my my ancestors or my relatives could pass that information on to their children and, and then add their own um, history to it. So that's the genesis of, the, of of that aspect of the story where, you know, one of the main 
the main character, uh, Betsy, is, is viewing footage, vi film footage from thousands of years in her past, which includes all of the history from everyone beyond that point, you know, that, that person's children and their children and their children. It's all in, encoded in this um, biography. And so I was very interested in, um, and I think that uh, other Jewish writers may identify with this in this concept of like, you know, you have this huge weight of history upon you, uh, being raised in the, in the Jewish faith and, and this notion that, you know, you are basically the, the voice or the, or the pre, the, the presence of the Jewish people, like all that history for going back to, you know, Adam toward you know, to you in the present, you know, whether or not you believe in any of that as actually happening, if you're, you know, if you're an atheist or, or if you believe that they're, the Bible's literal or, or fictional, um, either way, there's still that immense pressure of history. So it, I think at the moment that I wrote The History Within Us, that's kind of the emotion that was going through my mind and the experiences. And it's, it is one of my favorite stories. And I'm really happy that um, Rachel picked it for people of the book. And it's really, it's, it's an important and, and actually a very contemporary theme. I mean, the idea, especially after the Holocaust and the idea that of, of testifying because it's, you know, because we are forgetting our past. Right, exactly. And, and I mean, I think one of the things that I take from, from that story and one of the things that I find I end up writing about a lot is not just the weight of the history, but also the feeling that, um, that the history is very fragile or that the, the present is very fragile. The history could be forgotten. You're responsible for maintaining it. Um, and, uh, that everything can be ended very quickly, which I think is that thing that maybe for, um, you know, Jews in our century comes from the Holocaust, but certainly has come from a lot of different kinds of, um, disasters. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that for American Ashkenazic Jews may come from the, the Holocaust in our century. Obviously there have been a lot of massacres, uh, other than the Holocaust, even in the last hundred years. Well, well, so Rachel, so you mentioned the, the golem legend and just my, my impression looking over all these lists of Jewish fantasy and science fiction is the goal is that the golem recurs, uh, more often maybe than any other trope in, in Jewish fantasy. Um, do you guys agree with that? Do you think the golem is the most popular trope? And if so, why? I absolutely, um, I, I think that we actually see the, the golem trope, uh, appear in stories that aren't, um, overtly Jewish. Um, I, like Hal in 2001 is a golem. Um, the replicants in Blade Runner are golems. Um, you know, uh, Battlestar Galactica. Um, you know, the 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 Cylons. Anytime we have a a uh, creation that comes back to uh, potentially destroy its its creator, uh, you know, you're repeating the same mythology, the same story. There. I mean, uh, you know, ultimately, the creator loses control of of his or her creation and. It's interesting because if if you apply that myth to um humanity, you know, we're God's creations. So are we saying to ourselves that we ultimately wish to rebel against our creator? I mean, you see this story over and over again. It's 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 fascinating to me. So, uh on the one hand, um it can sort of symbolize um a rescuer and certainly um uh 
again, a lot of American Ashkenazi culture um, still is in that sort of post-traumatic Holocaust stage, like a lot of people would like a rescuer. So when we were reading um, reprints for people of the book, there were so many golem stories and so many of them set in the Holocaust where someone would be saved by a golem. This is obviously a very um, potent fantasy for people, you know. Um, uh, but another thing is that I think the golem speaks to liminality. Um, it's a created creature created by humans. It's sort of alive. It's sort of not. Um, we're not sure what state it's in. We're not sure, you know, what it's... Um, it, it's neither quite one thing nor another. It's not like anything else. Um, when I was doing research on werewolves, um, I found an essay about uh, werewolves often being used as metaphors for Jewishness, because again, you're trapped in that liminal space, neither one thing nor another. Uh, you can sort of pass for being a Gentile, um, <laughs> except for full moon, you turn out to be um, not really. Uh, and I think... Um, the idea that you're in a, in a liminal space uh, between Gentile culture and um, Jewish culture is is another thing that's very potent for um, American Ashkenazic Jews. Well, I mean, Matt, you mentioned that the the golem has even left, it even appears in stories that people don't think of as Jewish science fiction and has become kind of a science fiction trope. An example of that you gave on your blog was the story 72 Letters by Ted Chang. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Well, I just, yeah, I really like that story by Ted Chang, but one of the things that struck me about the story was, you know, it, it postulated this world where, um, and people who don't know the myth, there, there's this idea that one of the mystical names of God is 72 letters, and that you can use these letters in various um, permutations to uh, basically cast magic spells. And um, in the story, there the letters are used to animate all sorts of things. And one of the things that, that struck me when I read the story was it doesn't, it, there's no overt Judaism in it, but yet it's using very, you know, a hundred percent Jewish concept. So that, that to me was um, interesting because I, I think that oftentimes people are, are using Jewish myths and themes in their work without being aware of it. Now I know, of course, Ted is, brilliant person and was very aware of what he was doing but i i think that i've seen it in in other works where um i said oh okay i i recognize that theme i, I recognize that myth and but uh there's no overt mention of of its origins you'd be tried to reprint that story in people of the book the rights didn't work out mm -hmm. well it, you know it may well it may well be that uh that Shelley got her idea from Frankenstein from uh, mm -hmm. from the legend, which is interesting. So, um, actually, when I was at Anne Leckie's reading at Borderlands this weekend, uh, because her books are so concerned with artificial intelligence, somebody asked her, you know, what do you project will happen when they invent artificial intelligence? And she kind of laughed because, I mean, you know, what kind of question is that? Uh, you can't really predict these things; otherwise, science fiction would be, you know, accurate. Um, and she said, um, one of the things that, that troubles her in the discussion of artificial intelligence is this shaping of, um, 
the idea of robots or artificial intelligence as being inherently a slave class uprising, you know, that they are coming back against their creator. And I hadn't thought of that as having an origin in Golem mythology. And certainly she was discussing it um, as having an origin elsewhere. Um, but I wonder, you know, after this conversation, if I go back to her and I say, actually, the narrative might come from a lot older than you're thinking it does, that when we're looking at this pervasive trope in modern science fiction, it could actually have its roots in older mythology. I think that could be very interesting. Well, right. So, so the golem, like, like we're saying, has, is, I think, the most common trope in Jewish science fiction. And then I also saw a lot of mentions of Dybbuk's. Mm-hmm. And I know, Jack, you wrote a story called Dybbuk Dolls. Do you want to just talk about the Dybbuk uh, idea and how you used it? Well, you know, this goes back, <laughs> this goes back so far. If I reread the story at this point, it would be as if I was, I was reading something by, uh, by another writer. Uh, <laughs> the, I, the idea was, uh, that, uh, that the Jews in this extrapolated future were were, were creating the, these pornographic uh, uh, dibic uh, creations and uh, and and selling them. So that's that's really all I can say about this. It was because I wasn't using the dibic in the sense. Uh, that, uh, you, you, you know, that Isaac Bashevis uses it where, you know, where it enters you. It was, it was kind of this external creation and, uh, and it was, it was a business. <laughs> well, I, I mean, Matt, I know you did some research on Dybbuk. Do you want to just say a bit more about what you found out about the sort of the history of the idea? Yeah, so basically the Dybbuk's are um, souls that haven't found their home. So um, generally they're wicked souls. So the idea is that when, when you die, um, you know, if you're super righteous, you go right up to paradise with God. But if you're, uh, you know, a little bit wicked, even though you try to be good, and, and most people fall into this category, you go down to Gehenna, the, the angel Duma, the silent angel comes and cracks your grave with his fiery rod and takes you down to Gehenna where you suffer torment. Well, sometimes you're so wicked that Gehenna won't even let you in. And so basically uh, you get punished to to walk the earth essentially um, until you're absolved of your sins by various means. And so a lot of times in, in the mythology these wandering spirits will enter in uh, people's, uh, bodies possess them, uh, in, in the, in the common sense of possession. And, uh, the, the way they enter a household, uh, there are a couple ways they can enter a, a house. Uh, but basically, um, religious Jews will put on the, their doorpost a, a mezuzah. So it's, it's like a little box. Most people know what it is, but if you don't, it's a little box and inside is, is a prayer. And, uh, so if you have a mezuzah on your doorpost, the demons, evil spirits can't enter. Um, but one of the tricks that Dybbuk's use in evil spirits is to put an empty mezuzah on your door, a box without a scroll. So they get in your house, and how do they get into your body? Well, if, if you don't believe in the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. So, um, you know, that, that was traditionally a test of faith. Do you believe in the parting of the Red Sea? Yes, I do. So if you... One of the ways to expel a, a Dybbuk from, from possessing you is, is stating three times that I, you believe in the miracle of the, 
of the parting of the Red Sea. Um, and it's, there's other really cool parts, like when you uh, exercise a dibbuk from the body, it, it flees through like uh, the pinky toe, I believe. Um, it's really fascinating how these, these myths arise from, from these uh, basically biblical interpretations. Rachel, I mean, earlier when I said mentioned dibbics, it sounds like you had some. You've have you come across stories featuring dibbics in your uh, your editing work? Yeah, there are a couple in in the book. Um, I the one that's most uh, most reviewed, I think, is the Peter Beagle has a has a dibbic in it. Uh, is it dibbic dibbic? Uh, anyway, um, my Yiddish not so good. <laughs> uh, I um. Saw a lot of dibbics. I saw a lot of golems and I didn't see so much other things, uh, which got frustrating after a while because you're like, well, this is a pretty good golem story, but I have a pile of six over here. So <laughs> I think I'm good on golems for right now. Matt, what should we be writing about that no one touches? Oh man, there, there's so much out there. Um, you know, pick up, uh, the tree of souls by it's called the Mythology of Judaism by Howard Schwartz. And it's basically an encyclopedia of Jewish myth. And I've been using it as a reference guide for a lot of these myths on my blog. And uh, there's so much. I, I love the Shamir. Do you know this one? No. The Shamir worm. So basically, there's a, a biblical uh, proscription against using the weapons of war to fashion the ancient temple in Jerusalem like you couldn't use steel mm -hmm. so the rabbis were like well how did they build it? you know how did they cut the stone without steel tools so around this question evolved the myth of the shamir worm and it was basically a worm that all you have to do is touch it to stone and it would crack the stone wide open um so there there was even further stories to this where king solomon enslaved Ashmedai, the king of the demons, to tell him how to find the the Shamir worm, which um, a, a, a woodcock far off in a in a distant desert um, kept uh, tucked under his under his wing. There's so many cool things like that that uh, once you uncover it, you're like, wow, this, there's just a treasure of this stuff. Um, I I also like the um, the Z's. So like most people know about Behemoth. You know, the huge land creature may or may not have been an ox, and people know about Leviathan, which swallowed Jonah, right? But disease, not many people know about the, the, the giant bird. It was supposed to, um, you know, have its head in the sky and its wingspan cover the whole world and, and protect the earth from winds from the south. And, you know, its, its legs were so long and it was in water so deep that if you drop a hammer, um, where it stands, it would go like it would fall for seven years or something. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just I could go on, but I mean, the the point is that there there are all these unmined myths. Um, obviously, the ones that have the most resonance with where we are as a culture, as society, you know, or or maybe the individual writer. I think that's what we are, are most drawn to. Uh, that, hence, why we're doing a lot of uh, golem stories, but um, dibbuk stories. Also, I think it's just like uh, people who aren't Jewish writers have been using these themes as well. You know, like we, we've seen The Exorcist, right? We've all seen 2001. Well, what's The Exorcist? It's a Dybbuk. You know, <laughs> what's 2001? It's a golem story. 
I guess I'm curious when we're saying, you know, that these are Divic stories, that these are Golem stories, we can definitely read them that way. I'm wondering what other kinds of ancient mythologies probably have similar concepts where we could say, okay, well, this also goes back to the Babylonian idea of X, which may or may not be a precursor to the Golem. I mean, a lot of the world mythologies are um, tossing around some of the same ideas, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I uncovered in, in my research is a lot of times Judaism is repurposing these myths from other cultures. They're, like, no culture exists in isolation. So, you know, the, the Jew, Jewish re, uh, concept of reincarnation, which doesn't really play as much in conservative and reform Judaism, but I think it exists in, in more orthodox versions of Judaism, is the, the word for it is Gilgol, which is, is, means like a wheel or cycle, which is, is just, um, very similar to, you know, the Buddhist and Hindu notion of the of the cycle of life and death. So, yeah, I mean, I I think that there is definitely that notion of of ideas existing prior to to the Jewish ones. But I think that what's interesting is that how Judaism interprets that with you know using the Bible and the Talmud as clues. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think that's, that's the nature of religion. I mean, I mean, you know, the idea of the flood is, is certainly, uh, you know, in uh, in many of of the other uh, earlier uh, Middle Eastern religions. And uh, you know, I, I had a, I mean, I, I think you're right when when you said repurpose. I mean, I can remember being uh, in a church that was thousands of years old. Uh, you know, in Athens, and as I'm looking at the wall, there's a painting of Christ, except, you know, he was Poseidon, you know, holding the, the trident the whole nine yards. So mm-hmm. you can see how, you know, religions just subsume each other. Well, I mean, Matt, it's interesting because you're, you're talking about how, like, may, you know, these various fantasy and science fiction things are maybe inspired by the goal, maybe inspired by the Dybbuk, but it's hard to say for sure. But you have some examples you gave of things that were very specifically inspired by bits of Jewish folklore, right? Like the Vulcan salute in Dune. Could you talk about those? <laughs> sure. So uh, I think everyone knows the Vulcan salute, right? So, um, you know, Spock, uh, live long and prosper. He takes his uh, his hand and splits the uh, the fingers and makes like a V shape and the thumb is, is uh, pointed outward. Well, this comes from uh, Judaism, the, the priestly blessing. So, um, and I think uh, uh, Christians will be familiar with this uh, as well. When when they say the prayer, "May the Lord bless you and keep you," um, so this was a a part of the of the Jewish service, uh, whereby the uh, the Kohanim, the high priests, would um, bless the congregation, and uh, with their hands they would make the the Hebrew letter shin uh which stands for shaddai most high and they would basically make the equivalent of two vulcan salutes one with each hand and form like a a triangle and um hold their hands up over the uh congregation now it was believed that when they did this that the divine presence of god would come down from heaven and flow out through the priest's hands and bless the congregation and it was also believed that one should not ever look directly at the divine presence because it could kill you. Um, when uh, Moses, you know, the scene with, with the burning bush, um, God says to Moses, you know, uh, one cannot see me and live, so Moses cannot look directly at God. So um, it was 
basically when when Leonard Nimoy was a boy, his father the, the priests were about to do the the priestly blessing, and his father said, "Don't look, you know, it's bad, it's bad, uh, bad things will happen to you if you look." So of course, you know, Leonard Nimoy looks and he sees this the priests reaching out with their hands like this. They have their talus, their prayer shawls, like over their head. It's this very mysterious kind of mystical thing. And so this image always stuck with him. Obviously, he didn't die. <laughs> uh, this this image stuck with him. And uh, later on, um, when they were uh, working on uh, the character of Spock, Spock had met uh, in the script another Vulcan for the first time. And, and Leonard Nimoy says, you know, I think the character needs some kind of uh, gesture or greeting. You know, humans have a handshake. What would the Vulcans do? And so he he suggested... Uh, the one-handed uh, priestly blessing, and uh, that entered into pop culture history. Um, and then the the other one, uh, which is really cool, is uh, so people who are familiar with Dune know that uh, Paul Atreides was also known as the the Kwisatz Haderach, the shortening of the way, um, who basically could see into the future and do all sorts of uh, powerful mystical things. But that word actually comes from a 16th century concept called Kfisat Haderek. So in the 16th century, there were a bunch of um, Kabbalistic uh, rebbes, rabbis, that uh, studied Kabbalah and were believed to have the power of essentially teleportation. So they'd be in a carriage, and they'd be hundreds of miles from the village, and the sun was going down, and the Sabbath was about to begin, and they were not in a good part of, you know, wherever they are. They're, they're, you know, there's wild creatures, and there might be bandits on the road. And then suddenly they'd appear at the town, and apparently a lot of there's a lot there's a lot of stories of these rebbe's doing this, and it was called. Uh, the Kfisat Haderek, the shortening of the way, almost the exact same word. And in my research, I was unable to find exactly where Frank Herbert heard that reference and then used it in Dune, but it's very obvious. I mean, it's the same, it's almost the same word and it's the same definition that he w he must have come across the story at some point. Yeah, I use the idea in a, in a story uh, called Jumping the Road where the rabbis... Uh, you know, the the rabbis were able to basically teleport themselves, and I can't, I don't remember where I had found it, but uh, but yeah, it's it's out there. <laughs> I, I think also the uh, uh, Matt, you were you were talking about the uh, you know that blessing. I mean, you know, I was brought up you know in, in an Orthodox household, and it was it's really powerful. I mean, the idea of being you know. A, a, a young person and, and having, you know, your father covering you with, with, with the talus as, as the, uh, priests are, are doing, you know, are, are making the prayer. I mean, it, uh, it does stay with you. Mm -hmm. And we all looked. <laughs> <laughs> Did any of you die? <laughs> well, yeah, well, look, we're all going to die anyway, so I guess it's true. <laughs> yeah. It's a slow burn. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing I was just kind of curious about, Jack, or you guys. I mean, did did your parents tell you these kind of Jewish folk tales growing up? I mean, was that kind of part of your how you were raised? 
Well, I, you know, I, I can only speak for me, but my father prayed every morning, was, was orthodox, but he sort of made up the religion as he went along. So consequently, we could go out to a restaurant and he would eat shrimp, which of course is not kosher, but I couldn't, yet he wouldn't eat pork. But, uh, you know, we went to an, an Orthodox synagogue. You know, I was, you know, I went to Hebrew school, was brought up, uh, you know, in, in the Orthodox, you know, way. And, and even, you know, now, you know, as, as an atheist, I mean, you know, there's, there's a certain kind of poignancy and nostalgia to being in, in a small shul and hearing the, uh, you know, the, the Hebrew prayers. I mean, I can almost, you know, feel you know, the dust of, of, of the desert. So this stuff, whether we believe in it or not, it, it gets into our bones because we're brought up with it. At least that's, that's my uh, experience. I agree with that very much. Like, um, you know, I'm agnostic leaning towards atheism, um, but I, I still go to the high holidays just to be with my family and, and go to, uh, we go to a conservative synagogue. And there's very much that feel that you're, you're connecting with something that's very ancient and very old. And, um, it, it draws you in. The, the power of it draws you in. Well, I mean, Rachel, do you want to, do you want to say anything about whether you grew up with these folk tales or what sort of impact it might have had on you? Well, I was kind of ducking. Um, <laughs> no, um, it's fine. Uh, I was raised by atheists. Um, my mother, uh, my mother's father was raised Orthodox and deconverted, um, uh, due to intellectual disagreements with the church, I guess. Um, I think there was also just sort of a general, um, being a Jew brings bad things on you. It has all of these associations with, you know, blood and near escapes and all that stuff. So we're just not going to talk about it. We're just going to pretend we have a clean break. And so um, I have a lot of sort of sneaky cultural Jewish stuff, like sometimes that I still uncover has a connection to religious stuff that I didn't even realize, realize was there or, or beliefs that um, uh, are not consonant with um, most modern Christian religious practice that I assume is just sort of a cultural default. And then I'll talk to people who grew up Catholic and realize, oh, no, that's derived from the Jewish family history. Um, but I don't have a great deal of um, experience with the actual um, following religious tradition stuff. Yeah, well, that's that's bag that you're in one way you're very lucky not to have to carry. <laughs> I mean, so one th one thing that seems to be a fairly common experience among science fiction writers that I've met is that they were raised religious, and then reading science fiction actually caused them to question their religion. You know, just learning science and learning about all these different ways of looking at things led them to question their beliefs. So I'm just kind of curious, Jack. You were you were raised in this Orthodox household? Did learning science or reading science fiction play any role in your kind of abandoning those beliefs? Uh, well, it was, it had a top of mind awareness for me because when I, you know, my father was a science fiction reader. He, he, he was an, an attorney, but he, and, and he used to keep, uh, all of his book of the month club, uh, volumes in my room so you know before i could even read you know i i would see the books but uh 
it's kind of an odd twist because the whole idea of Judaism is to question. And the more mm-hmm. I questioned, the more I found that, uh, that I couldn't get a satisfactory answer. And there is a point I found in, in Judaism itself where, you know, you're, you're encouraged to question, but there's a point where you can't question past that. Now, I couldn't say that it was science fiction that focused that or that catalyzed it, but it was probably one of a myriad of, of elements that, uh, you know, that caused me to always ask why. <laughs> okay, so I, I do want to get back to um, some of these fictional examples. I mean, I, I asked our listeners if they could suggest things to talk about for this segment. I got a bunch of suggestions. Um, so Megan Smith says basically anything by Michael Chabon. Uh, she mentions The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay and The Yiddish Policeman's Union and Gentlemen of the Road, which started life uh, with, under the working title Jews with Swords. Um, I don't know, does anyone have anything they want to throw in about Michael Chabon? Well, he did the uh, the piece that I mentioned in People of the Book that we closed with. Um, he seems pretty brilliant. <laughs> I really liked uh, The Yiddish Policeman's Union, um, not just because I take Yiddish classes once a week and but just because uh like the one of the trying not to be spoilery but basically there's there's a concept of the uh one of the the Sadikim Nisterim the the hidden righteous ones that play a part in in that book and uh that that uh, myth also uh uh I use that myth in King of Shards in my novel so I really, I really enjoyed uh, reading about that, especially the uh, fictional Alaska where where uh, Yiddish was the lingua franca. That was pretty cool. I think he's also um, called attention to the Jewish origins of um, superhero stuff. Mm, yeah. Uh, Marlene Barr talks about that in the introduction that she did to uh, uh, to concentration, where she. Says, I don't know if I can find it here, but in essence, that the creator of, of Superman was writing it, you know, during the Nazi era, and it was he was writing it in order to uh, to try to give voice uh, and an idea of, of power to the Jews. Uh, uh, so it had it, it was directly related to uh, uh, to the Holocaust. And uh, I think the way they they handled it, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, in the comics is that Superman went off to fight, but um, obviously they couldn't have him fighting in the real world, or he would have decimated the, the Nazi <laughs> forces. So they had to to write around that somehow. Um, and for me, this is. Um, this is one of the more interesting, um, complicated grounds around Jewish science fiction, uh, just because probably, um, of the timing, um, right around when people of the book came out, someone had written an essay on why is there no Jewish science fiction and fantasy, which is, you know, not deeply true that there is no Jewish science fiction and fantasy. Uh, but the author was making the argument that you have something like Harry Potter, which springs forth from certain Christian cultural assumptions and saying that there isn't as much stuff that springs forth from uh, Jewish uh, religious cultural um, assumptions. Now I'm, I'm 
still not sure that I agree with him that that's true. But the explanation that he offered for that, which I thought was interesting, is that um, Jews have a lot of trouble believing in something like Harry Potter wizards who are these basically, um, well, they're not omnipotent, but they're very, very powerful forces for good who have utterly failed to bother to step in um, to ameliorate any of the world's massacres over the past century, and that the violence um, that Jews have culturally experienced as a group makes them much less likely to be willing to um, buy into that particular kind of fantasy escapism. Uh, one reason I don't necessarily believe that that's true is that there have been a lot of groups that have experienced a lot of violence, you know, over the years, and, and I don't know that they necessarily all um, would have the same reaction to so-called Wayne Scotting fantasy. But if you do think about Superman and the way they had to uh, navigate the Jewish question, or you think about Harry Potter and the way that, um, you know, they're fighting the war um, with their Voldemort, but not getting involved in, you know, the, the murder of <laughs> 6 million, 11 million people. Um, then it does become a, a flaw with a lot of these narratives or something that you can't unsee after a while. I did find that quote, uh, Jerry Siegel's quote, uh, the guy who wrote Superman. Do you want me to, to do you want it? Yeah, yeah please. No, go ahead, please. Yeah. <laughs> he said, what led me into creating Superman in the early 30s? Dot, dot, dot. Hearing and reading of the oppression and slaughter of helpless oppressed Jews in Nazi Germany. Seeing movies depicting the horrors of privation suffered by the downtrodden. I had the great urge to help. Help the downtrodden masses somehow. How could I help them when I could barely help myself? Superman was the answer. Right. And I'm not an expert on superhero comics, but I'm pretty sure. Were there two guys, two Jewish guys who created Superman and it was uh, Siegel and Schuster? That's correct. Yeah. Um, but Rachel, what you were saying uh, made me wonder if there might be some natural affinity for Jewish people with horror, because like, sort of cosmic horror, right? I mean, because that would maybe seem like a more um, like a worldview that's more consistent with the experience of the Jewish people down through the centuries. Uh, well, I mean, maybe I, you've got the the werewolf stuff, right? Um, so that one of the first modern werewolf stories, you know, again, this is research I did <laughs> a long time ago, so I can't claim that it's necessarily perfectly accurate. But uh, one of the more modern, uh, one of the first modern werewolf stories is about a rabbi surviving um, a massacre and being the only survivor from um, his people. And uh, afterwards, seeing himself as a monster so that the werewolf is a metaphor for survival guilt. So that would be horror. In terms of my work, I don't consider myself a horror writer. However, the stories that I have written, you know, uh, you know my, my oeuvre of, of Jewish stories, like camps and down among the dead men with Gardner Dozois, uh, and, uh, and the economy of light. All of these stories are horror because, you know, dealing with, you know, that's, that's a very powerful way using the fantastic to try to deal with, with the Holocaust, which is, which was so irreal that it's, it's difficult to convey it in, in, in kind of realistic terms. So there I was, by default, writing horror. So I, I, I don't know if that goes anywhere, but I'm throwing it in, and Matt, please take over. 
Um, you know, one of the things I, I see a lot is themes of, of loss, you know, uh, unfathomable loss. And, you know, I, I think that's something that I, you know, I was raised in a conservative tradition. I went to Hebrew school and, you know, Holocaust was this thing that just happened and it was terrible, but I didn't, all I had was an intellectual understanding of it. And as I got older, I started to have more and more of an emotional understanding with it and really what that meant. And I think that less, it's less horrific. Uh, well, obviously it's extremely horrific, but it, it seems to come out in my work as like, how do you deal with such a tremendous loss? How could you even describe it in, mm -hmm. in a way that other people can comprehend? And, and I, and I think that, yeah, there's, there's a horror in loss, but the, the primal thing there is, is how do you describe something like that? More grief than horror. Um, I, I will, I will speak as, as a counter. I have a friend who, um, uh, was raised in a, a conservative Jewish household. His name is Barry Deutsch. Um, and he's a, cons um, he's a cartoonist and graphic novelist. And he really dislikes the conflation of Judaism with loss and the Holocaust, which, you know, I agree. If you think they're the same thing, then, you know, they're not. Although that tends to be how I process it in my writing as well. Uh, but for him, one of the ways he pushes back is by writing um, lots of humorous stories about Jews. And his um, majorly successful work is a series of middle grade uh, graphic novels, fantasy graphic novels about an 11 year old Orthodox Jewish girl who, uh, a Hasid actually, who wants to learn how to fight dragons and get a sword. Um, and they're just very light and there's a lot of Jewish uh, religious content in the background of forms of Judaism that aren't often represented while still having sort of a, a quirky, you know, light feel. And I, I do think that uh, getting more, um, I think it would be good if there was more literature that wasn't just processing loss out there that was explicitly Jewish. But, you know, speaking as a writer who always is processing loss is explicitly Jewish. Obviously, both need to be done. You know, obviously that, that, you know, Judaism contains, you know, much more than, than the Holocaust. Uh, it's just, I mean, for me personally, I think that the, the occurrence of the Holocaust profoundly shifted everything. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the idea of, uh, supplicatory prayer, uh, you know, the whole idea where, you know, where Jews, uh, feel they are in the world. And, uh, and, you know, and it brought out in, in such extraordinary terms, you know, the, you know, the nature of evil. Uh, so that has kind of obsessed, you know, I've been rather obsessed with that in my work. So it's hard for me to, you know, to step back from it, but certainly, you know, the culture, uh, you know, the, the Judaic culture is, is so large that, you know, there's, you know, there, there's room for, you know, for, for, for many, many other things. Well, well, I mean, but Jack, you do have this book coming out called Concentration. Do you want to just uh, say a bit more about that? Like, uh, what, what does it include and just tell people a little bit more about it? Well, I have written a number of stories uh, that are Jewish, 
And, you know, some of them are not uh, meant to be deep. You know, I wrote a story called Fairy Tale about the unseelie court invading the Borscht Belt. And uh, it's told from the perspective of a stand-up Jewish comedian. But there, there's a number of stories I've written that explore uh, the nature of the Holocaust. And I collected them into this uh, collection called Concentration. One of the stories, and then I'll get, I'll get off the, the podium here, uh, that might be of interest, it's a story called uh, The Economy of Light, which was also published as a separate uh, short novel. Uh, and I was at a picnic with Lucius Shepard, and we were talking about a story he wrote called Mengele. I don't know if anybody remembers that. And, he, and as we were talking, he looked at me and he said, well, what if Mengele completely changed his uh, life? What if he escaped and, uh, and lived the life of a Schweitzer? You know, if you found him, would you kill him? And that was, you know, that, that's why I wrote uh, the story, The Economy of Light, which is about a, a guy who was in the camps, was one of the children that he tortured, and Mengele had killed his brother. And I have Mengele escape, you know, to South America and actually become a kind of Schweitzer figure. And I put my protagonist in front of him with that option. Uh, does he kill him? That moral question, I mean, and it's, it's, you know, it's the question of, you know, can people, you know, truly change? And, uh, I didn't, while I was writing it, you know, I, I, I was writing it to find out, you know, how I felt about that kind of, uh, ambiguity. And uh, it basically took me 15 years to write the story because I couldn't end it. And then finally, you know, a number of years ago, I just, I saw the ending and I wrote the story. A number of, the, a couple of the stories in the book are ambiguous in that way. There's another story called T, which is not a science fiction story, but, you know, Gardner published it in Asimov's basically because he liked it. But the idea was, is this old, this old lady has tea every Wednesday with this fellow, and then she hears the rumor that he had been, you know, a Nazi uh, and, and might be sought after for war crimes. And the question there is, you know, what does she do? And what she ends up doing is she still has tea with him every Wednesday. I, I find that I'm ambiguous with a lot of my feelings, and and so, you know, I, I tried. I've been trying to sort them out, and I really do feel that the fantastic, that fabulation, that magical realism, SF, all of that, is a way that we can talk about uh, events that mimetic fiction can't touch. Okay, so so unfortunately we're, we're way over time here, so we need to start wrapping things up. But Matt, I definitely want to give you a chance to talk about King of Shards. So why don't you just tell people about King of Shards? Sure, uh, King of Shards. Uh, my novel comes out October thirteenth, uh, and it is uh, based on the myth of the Lamed Vav. If you're not familiar with the myth, 
uh, the, it states that there are 36 hidden righteous people that sustain the world. If any one of those uh, hidden saints cease to be righteous, the world will be destroyed. Uh, also, the interesting thing about it is that these saints are so anonymous that you or I could be uh, one of these saints. So as you're walking along the street, you might run into one of these Lamadvavniks. Uh, in uh, King of Shards, uh, demons discover who these Lamadvavniks are and try to kill them uh, one by one in order to uh, bring about the destruction of the earth. Um, Daniel Fisher discovers he's a Lamadvav. Uh, he teams up with Ashmedai, the king of the demons, uh, in order to uh, <laughs> defeat other demons who have kicked him out of hell. Um, the myth also, um, the book also uh, uses the the myth of the uh, the shattered vessels of creation. I didn't really talk about this today, but uh, the idea is that ours uh, wasn't the first universe that God created. He created other universes, and they displeased him, so he smashed them. Uh, their fragments exist uh, throughout the the cosmos, essentially, and uh, it is our job as as human beings to uh, uplift these these fallen sparks by being righteous. In King of Shards, uh, I uh, posit that what if these shards, what if these uh, early universes weren't empty when when God smashed them? What if they were, uh, they had creatures existing on them? And so I uh, said uh, that demons had lived on these worlds. And, you know, when God smashed them, most of them died, but a few of them survived. And they're really pissed. So uh, that's where the, the King of Shards comes from, and uh, that's my little spiel about the book. It sounds terrific. Yeah. Thanks. Well, and Matt, say the thing about Ashmedai weeping when he sees the guy's shoes. I thought that was so interesting. Yeah, so there's a lot of stories, uh, apocryphal stories of... of um, of Ashmedai, who's the king of the demons, and in one of the stories, he's he's walking uh, past a wedding, and he sees um, the the groom's shoes, and he begins weeping, and and the 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 one who's walking with him says, "Why are you weeping?" He said, "You know the the um, the groom won't live through the day; he's going to die uh, within a day." And I and I thought to myself, "Wow, like you know, in in this myth." Uh, you know, the king of demon kind is weeping. You know, we often have this vision of demons as being these completely, you know, evil, ruthless, full of vengeance. But, you know, here was a sensitive side of a demon. And I thought, that's who I want to write. I want to write the, the sensitive demon. Yeah, he's, he's angry. He's, he's really pissed at, at what God did to his, his universe. But he's got a sensitive side. So I, I, I almost want you to, um, I do want you to empathize with him to to a point, but at, you know at some point, you know he is he is the king of the demons, right? I won't say <laughs> any more without spoiling the book, but you know I I wanted to craft a villain that you didn't entirely hate. Well, sort of like the portrayal in Paradise Lost of Satan, who. Mm-hmm have, you know, a uh, uh, kind of sympathetic side. Now, the book sounds terrific, buddy. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's out now? It will, it will come out October 13th. So awesome. it, should, it will be out when this airs. All right. So everybody go check that out. And so, uh, so Rachel, do you, uh, we're out of time, but do you have any last words, any, anything else you want to mention? 
Yeah, I wanted to mention very briefly, um, just uh, because we didn't really cover global Jewish science fiction, and I certainly can't in the press, but uh, there is a science um, there is a fantasy scene um, in Israel, uh, although a lot of it, I think, takes place um, in English and some of it over here. Uh, Levi Tidhar is a great person to check out. Um, and there are some Jews writing about the uh, modern Israeli-Palestine situation, um, not necessarily from a Zionist perspective. One of those who does not write from a Zionist perspective uh, is Ben Burgess, and some of his fiction um, does take on... Uh, displacement and other issues that are going on with the current Israeli government. All right. Yeah, I have a whole list of stuff I didn't get a chance to bring up, but I'll just direct people quickly to I did come across a list on Amazon.com called Jewish Science Fiction and Fantasy by Rabbi Yonasan Gershom. Uh, he's also the author of the book Jewish Themes in Star Trek. So if you're looking for more material on this uh, theme, definitely check out that list. But I think otherwise, we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Jack Dan and Rachel Swirsky and Matt Kressel. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. This was, this was great. Thanks. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Jack Dan, Rachel Swirsky, and Matthew Kressel for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Rory Carroll in Ireland, who writes, Great show. I'm a huge sci-fi fan who happens to have worked in radio and TV for over 10 years. I think that as well as creating a show that has helped me discover amazing new authors, David has the ability to know when to keep quiet and let his guests do the talking. Often presenters want to impress their listeners with their own knowledge. David obviously has that, but he doesn't show off. A+. So big thanks again to Rory Carroll for that great review. And of course, a special thank you to Carlos Maison, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank audible.com for sponsoring today's show. For a free audiobook download, visit audible.com slash galaxy. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.